You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're continuing in our teaching series through the Gospel of John, looking at these encounters with Jesus. Uh, You know that an encounter with Christ always, it can't leave us the same. We're always changed. We either reject him and, and, and leave discouraged, or we accept him and worship him and trust in him. Today we come to this famous encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. We're looking at John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. We'll read through verse 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem in the place where people, is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word. Uh, I was was driving around with Garrett, driving around Tucson. We were approaching the church. Uh, I asked for permission to tell this story. Uh, And we're we're driving to the church, and and I see the Tucson mountains in the distance. And it was one of those beautiful days where, you know, there's some cloud cover and you can see the dimensions of the mountain range with the shadows. It was just really pretty. And I said, would you look at that? Look at this view. What an amazing view. What a beautiful mountain. He says, yeah, that's pretty good. He's like, but, but these mountains from a distance, they look really big. But as you draw near, they get really small. And the Catalina Mountains, they, they, they look kind of normal. But as you get draw, draw nearer to them, they look really big. And those are, those are the beautiful mountains, right? And aside from my, my bubble being bursted in that moment um, by Garrett, I, it, was a really, it was a really profound observation. He's absolutely right. You draw nearer to 
to the west, and these mountains get little, they get smaller. So much so you're like, I can climb this. I can totally climb this in a day. And then the, the Catalinas, they're li- they look big, but as you draw closer, they look gi- they're gigantic. They become gigantic. Let me try to segue this story and how it touched me and how it relates to this passage, okay? This is such a great story. This is such a great story. And one of the reasons it's such a great story is because Jesus teaches us that when we have a true encounter with Christ, the, the closer we draw into him, the more beautiful, more majestic, bigger, amazing he will become in our eyes. And it's so easy and tempting to just live our life and have these encounters with Christ where sometimes he even becomes, he, in our perception, he appears smaller. Like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you just trust Jesus that he forgave your sins and one day you go to heaven. And we could boil it down to that, but Jesus is wanting to teach us that a real encounter is so much bigger than that. It's so much broader than that. It affects every single part of our life. It is more than just the future hope of eternal life. It is so much more. And don't get me wrong, that's an, that's an amazing gift. That's a great thing. But an encounter with Jesus that only leaves us looking for a future rescue means we haven't gone deep enough with him. We haven't drawn closer. We haven't gotten closer with him to see how big he really is. And we never get to the bottom of how big he is. Because the gift that God offers us in Jesus Christ changes our entire life. Everything about us. Not just the future part of our life. Changes our life today. Transforms us, renews us, restores us. In every way, in our relationships, our emotions, our spiritual capacity, everything is changed. And not just those parts of our life that we think are just the sacred parts that God cares about, because he cares about it all. Jesus aims to change every single part of our life. And that is what he is teaching us with this encounter with this woman. It is not just about religious views, about our, our future destiny, but God aims to show this woman that an encounter with him will change everything about her life. And my hope is that as as we encounter Jesus, as we draw closer to him, we will see that he's even bigger than we imagined, even more beautiful, more majestic, more breathtaking. And that we would never grow tired of living in awe of, of who he is and the gift that he offers to us. Jesus teaches us through this encounter with the Samaritan woman that the gospel reaches beyond every barrier, that the gospel redeems us from every sin, and the gospel renews us in every part of our life. Okay, it reaches, it redeems, and it renews. That's the privilege I have as a pastor, is alliteration. So I'm using that today, okay? Let's look at the first one. The gospel reaches beyond every barrier. The first, and and I think most obvious reaction that readers would have to this passage, first century Jews reading this passage, hearing this story, would be one of shock and disbelief. That would be on their minds as they're reading this story. That's how a first century Jew would react to it. We know that there is incredible racial animosity between uh, the Jews and the Samaritans. We know that in this culture, men did not have private conversations uh, with women alone. We know that the Samaritans were were heretics. They were literally, 
they would cut they would cut out parts of the Old Testament that God would give to them and just choose the parts that kind of fit their political or social agenda. Here's the real brief here's the brief history of the Samaritan people and how there came to be such animosity between them and the Jews. Long time ago, the Assyrians attacked uh, the kingdom of Israel. They killed a lot of the Israelites and they deported the rest of the Israelites to a foreign land and they occupied their land and they, over a generation of people, 70 years in exile, these Jews would uh, kind of intermarry and had offspring that were of what they considered a, a an impure ethnicity mixed with Gentile and Jew. They'd be exiled from their land for 70 years. And over time, they didn't just change in their ethnicity, but they changed also in their faith, in what they believed. They adopted not just the ethnicity of the, of the foreign people, but also their, their religion and their paganism. And they returned after 70 years back to Israel, to the Northern Kingdom. And the Southern Kingdom in Judea, the, the Israelites were still there. They had lived there and remained faithful. The temple was there in Jerusalem in their capital city. And these, this, these, this different kind of people, mixed different ethnicities and different religions come back and say, we want, we want our own temple up here. You can have your temple. We want to worship God our own way. And the Israelites wanted to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem to regain their worship of the one true God. And so you here have a nation divided between some people who wanted to build the wall and other people who didn't want to build the wall. Could you imagine? It's just ridiculous, you know, something like that. And so you have, a, you have this political war, this civil war going on between two people, one that wanted to build the wall and the others said, we don't need to build the wall. History just repeats itself, doesn't it? And not only that animosity, there was religious animosity, there was ethnic animosity. Uh, the animosity just grew and grew. Two kinds of, two groups of people emerged through this and they hated one another. They hated one another. And so much so that the, the Samaritans were considered by the Jews this social political, ethnic, like riffraff that the Jews wanted no part in. And the animosity was so strong, so strong, they could not associate with them in every way. Here's just a map. It's really hard to see from, from a distance, but if you're back there, but I want to show you this picture here. So in the, in the south, we have Judea. That's the Dead Sea. And in the north, you see the Sea of Galilee. And Galilee is all the way at the north. And you see from Judea to Galilee is Samaria. Je Jesus is in, in this setting. He's in Judea, and he needs to get up to Galilee. Where's the, the best way to go, right? Just straight through, and you're going to hit Samaria. That's what Jesus does. But that's not what Jews did. Jews would leave Judea, go to the east, cross the Jordan River, which is that vertical black line. They would go north, and then they would cross the Jordan River again to the west just to avoid going to see any of these people they hated. But not for Jesus. He doesn't do this. He goes right through Samaria by the sovereignty of God and the providence of God because God wanted him to meet with this woman and have an encounter with him that is going to teach us so much. The first thing that we're meant to see, you can get rid of the map, the first thing that we are meant to see about the gospel as it is embodied in Christ is that it reaches beyond every barrier. He is clearly recognized as a Jew, by his stunning good looks, obviously. 
And sorry, I'm 50% Jewish. And uh, <laughs> sorry, I got to look for my wife on that one. Um, he's recognized. So she says, you're obviously a Jew. You're obviously a Jew. I'm obviously a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? You can't, you can't do this. And he breaks social taboos. He breaks racial barriers, even norms for how men relate with women in order to meet this woman where she is. He says, give me a drink, in which, to which she replies, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know the barriers that exist between us? To which, to which Jesus replied, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be giving me a history lesson on the barriers between us. But you would be asking me for a drink. You would drop everything and you would ask me, give me a drink and I would give it to you. And I would satisfy your heart's desires. And the reason he's doing this is to teach us a very important lesson about the gospel, that the gospel is not reserved for those who are morally pure, for those who are good, for those who are of a certain kind of people. The, the gospel is a gift from God. Do you see this in verse 10? He says, if you knew the gift of God. So Jesus says, give me a drink. And she says, don't you know who I am and who you are and why we cannot relate? And he says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the grace of God, you wouldn't be focused on the reasons why you are unfit for a relationship with me, but you would drop everything you would ask for this gift. See, if the, if the gospel were something that you and I earned by reaching out of our way to God, reaching our way to God, then salvation would be for those who have the right morality, for those who have the right purity, the right strength, the right character, the right intelligence, ethnicity, education, personality, whatever it might be. If, if, if reaching to God and being accepted by God was anything that had to do with us, then we would be justified in feeling morally superior to people who didn't have the character, the intelligence, the right uh, pedigree or whatever it is. But she's shocked that Jesus would have this relationship with her. And when Jesus' disciples return with their food, they are shocked as well. They're shocked that he's talking with her. They are, their breath is taken away. Why? Because Jesus is reaching beyond every barrier to reach this woman. He is meeting her where she is. He's embodying the fact that a relationship with God and all his blessing comes not through our effort or our earning, but through his grace. And that's hard to believe and it's hard to live out. It's hard to live out this real reality and let it really dig into every aspect of our life and how we treat people around us that are different from us in certain ways. That a relationship with Jesus is not about who we are and what we have done to earn it. It is a gift from God. Consider this, to what degree have your personal feelings about another person or another kind of person or viewpoint of another person kept you from the will of God to embody the gospel to them? To what degree have your personal feelings impacted how you embody the gospel to other people? We didn't go further in this passage, but if we did, you would see that this encounter with Jesus and his disciples, they come back 
And we are told that they are shocked by this meeting that Jesus has with the Samaritans. And they're thinking to themselves, what's going on here? Why is this happening? And how can we separate Jesus from this woman? But they kind of let the conversation play out, but they don't, they're kind of uncomfortable. And I imagine it playing out in this way, that they're going up to Jesus or thinking, Jesus, are you okay? Do you want us to send this strange lady away that's bothering you? Jesus, are you hungry? Are you tired? Can we help you? How do you feel right now with this woman? Is she troubling you? To which Jesus just says, I have food that you don't know about. And my food is to do the will of God. It's as if Jesus is saying, what do my feelings about this woman's sin have anything to do with how I obey God and embody the gospel to her? Could it be, is it possible that we give way too much emphasis in how we feel about people and far too little emphasis has been given to how we can embody the gospel to them? Is it possible that when we think of another person, we think too much about how we're impacted personally by their beliefs, their views, their appearances, their temperament, their personality, their political leanings, their ethnicity, whatever it is. Instead of saying, you know, my, my job, my will, my food is to do the will of God. How I feel about that person doesn't matter. God has called me to embody the gospel to them. Jesus embodies the gospel with this woman and everyone's shocked. The woman's shocked and, and, and these followers of Jesus are shocked. And he says, there's no barrier too high. There is no barrier too thick that I cannot reach beyond. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. And no one is morally superior to anyone. That's the first thing that is so stunning about how Jesus shows the gospel in here. The second is that gospel redeems every Sin. Jesus does not meet this woman where she is only. He gets really personal. He doesn't just say, I care about you and I'm going to meet you where you are. He confronts her. He challenges her. Do you see that? He says, why don't you go call your husband? He knows what he's doing. He knows what's going on. And she says, I don't have a husband. Is she, is she lying or is she telling the truth? Well, we know she's telling the truth, but we also know she's being deceptive. Oh, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right in saying that you don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man that you are now with, which we know, which we, which we know is, he's saying, the, the man you're now having this sexual relationship with, he's not your husband either. First of all, think of the shock that you would feel if a total stranger that you have this conversation with just revealed like the deepest parts of your life this person that just knew this detailed knowledge about your struggles, about your past, about particular parts of your life that you are feeling shame about, guilt about, how would you feel the shock of that all? And what does this woman do in this? She changes the subject. <laughs> I don't want to go there. Let's talk about, let's, let's go back to the history lesson. Let's talk about theology. Let's do that. She says, I don't want to go there. You know, and she says, you know my past. You're obviously a, a, a prophet. Let's talk about theology for a second. Because there was this religious controversy at the time. The, the Jews believed that, that uh, 
that the place to worship God was in the temple in, this, in the capital city of Jerusalem. The Samaritans, they, you know, or the, the, the people who were out in exile, they came back and they settled in Samaria. They made a capital city in the north in Samaria and they put up a new temple in, in the north. And they said, well, some say that we're supposed to worship God here. You say we're supposed to worship God down there. And what's the truth? Because you seem to know some things about theology and people's life and past. And Jesus doesn't let her stay on the surface. Do you see what he does again? He brings it back. He brings it back. He keeps going to the real issue. He says, neither in that temple or in this temple will make you right with God. Only I can do that. There's, only a, there's a kind of worship that God, a worshiper that God is looking for. One that's not tied to a certain place or a certain, uh, a certain kind of external uh, righteousness. It it's so much more comfortable to talk about religion and theology and conflict in the world, isn't it, than what's really going on in our heart? Isn't it so much more comfortable to talk about like everything that's broken out there than what's broken in here? And that's what the woman is trying to do. Jesus is kind of going in softly, patiently. He's, he's showing compassion to her, and he's wanting to talk about the real issues in her life, and she's wanting to talk about the real issues out there. Let's not talk about what's broken in me. Let's talk about how everybody's just fighting with one another and we just need to all get along. This is where Jesus goes. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah speaks on behalf of God and says to the people of God, you have sinned against me in two ways. You have forsaken God, the, the, the real spring of living water. And the second sin is that you have made for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns, that hold murky water and polluted water, and that is what you're drinking. And so these two sins are forsaking God and then turning to other things in order to find our satisfaction, hope, and meaning in life, but it never satisfies. And yet even as though God, God's people committed these sins, he promised to redeem them. He promised that one day he would come, he would graciously pour out his Holy Spirit on his people. He would become the spring of living water that would satisfy, quench their thirst, cleanse them from all sin, that he would buy them back. He would redeem them he, and it would come at great loss to himself. He would cleanse them from all sin. And Jesus exposes these two sins in this woman. Her sin of forsaking true worship, forsaking the love of God, and turning to find her satisfaction in all the wrong places. You know, when, when we turn from God, when we start to wander from God, we will go and try to find that peace, that satisfaction in other things in all the wrong places. We do that. By, that's our nature because we are born to worship. We are born to seek after something to satisfy. We're born into a world that is broken. We have brokenness within us, and we are created to worship God, to be worshipers. And rejecting God forces us to turn to something else for hope, turn to something else for acceptance and love. But all those things are designed to kill and to rob and destroy and here's the reality that, that, that the, the writer, the author, John, is wanting us to convey, to convey to us in this story is that since Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, we should not be surprised when our encounter with him exposes our deepest sins. 
because the purpose of his coming was to rescue us from our sin, to bring us back to God, to, to restore us to this relationship with him based on his love. Of course, when we have an encounter with him, he is going to touch in the deepest parts of our life that we have tried to close off to ourselves and close off to others. And after this exposure, maybe in her kind of a agree, agree to disagree moment, right? She's like, well, let's agree to disagree. She says, well, I guess when, I guess when the Messiah comes, when, the one, when Christ comes, he'll explain everything to us. And he says, yeah, that's me. I'm right here. I mean, in no uncertain terms, he says, the one who's standing in front of you, that's the one you're looking for. The one that you have thought that will come and satisfy you, that will show you the truth, that will be that spring of living water to satisfy your longings for acceptance. It's me. I'm right in front of you. It's happening right now. He, he is saying to her, you will not be truly satisfied. You will never be truly satisfied until you receive the gift that I offer. It's the same lesson for us. It's the same lesson for you and I. You can't experience the abundant life while continuing in your current life. You can't do that. An encounter with Jesus is to come face to face with our only hope for eternal life. And what is eternal life? What is this spring of living water that bubbles up into eternal life? It's more than going to heaven when we die. Jesus tells us that eternal life is the true assurance and the true experience of the love and affection and acceptance of God through faith in Christ who gave his life for us. Eternal life is to know deeply and fully the love of God, the acceptance of God, the full affection of God, the answer to our deepest longings, the, the rescue for our worst of sins. And then the woman goes back to town and what does she say to, her, to the, woman in the, the other women in the town? She says, come meet this man who told me everything I've ever done. Well, that can't be true, right? Unless that was a really long conversation. But what does that say about our sin? What that says is that we can, our, our lives are centered around those parts of our sin that really, that really oppress us that really are despairing. And when we don't have Christ, we are not free. When we have not had that gift and tasted that gift and been satisfied by the gospel, it feels that our whole life is just revolves around our longing to be at rest. And Jesus puts his finger on that pain, on that angst, on that unrest, and it makes her feel like he knew everything about her because to her, that was everything. That was her whole life. It was her loneliness. It was her depression. It was her seeking for affection from others. It was her loss of joy and identity. It was everything. She had been abandoned or divorced or cheated on or lost a husband through death, whatever it was. It, just continually in her life. Here's a woman's life that was defined by sin, in bondage to sin, 
And that's often how it is for us. Our mess, our, our secret struggles, our sin-stained personal life follows us and it tends to define us wherever we go. And this is exactly what Jesus came to do to rescue her from. To rescue her from the life that was defined by her despair is now defined by his acceptance. Exposing our sin is, is never the end goal. It, it's not the definitive end goal for Jesus. And it's not the end goal for him with this woman. But rather, it is to show her more fully the nature of this wonderful gift that he offers to her. And that is that the gospel renews us in every part of our life. What's the living water that Jesus offers? It's obviously not a physical thing, right? Because she, she is confused there. She, just like we learned with Nicodemus last week, he, he doesn't really get the born again idea. And she's not really connecting the dots here either on what he's saying about living water. She says, I'd really love not to come back to this well again to have to get water. So can you show me where this water is? I can drink and never be thirsty again. Listen, a person can live about, what, a month without food, give or take. A person can live about maybe 11 days, two weeks without sleep. A person can live maybe three days without water. Some studies have shown four, never more than five. Water, it's, it's obviously, it's one of those most vital components to all of life. Our body's made up of 50% of it. And obviously, Jesus is not talking about physical water, water in his physical sense. So what is the living water? He's teaching us that he offers something to all of us and to this, wo to this woman that is as satisfying as water can be to a person dying of thirst. When Jesus spoke of the water welling up, he uses this word, this beautiful Greek word that literally means to leap for joy. That when the gospel comes into our hearts, it comes into our lives, it, it into a foundation of faith. What it does is it begins to bubble up and leap for joy and overflows in our life. There's not a single element or sphere in our life that is untouched by the reality of being known, loved, and accepted by God. This, the picture he paints is one of a gift that he offers that is so alive, so energetic, so powerful, so satisfying, that it satisfies even the strongest cravings of the heart. And this, and this will continue through our life. It will grow stronger as we draw closer to Jesus in faith. That craving will grow stronger. That joy will be deeper. Our faith will be more mature. And it will continue to overflow in our hearts day after day after day. And in one day, it'll lead all the way up into being with him face to face forever, where our hearts long for nothing other than him ever again. Can you imagine how thirsty for that this woman was? Can you imagine her, how empty her life was? How tired she was of every day being alone, every day being used, every day being ostracized from a community knowing that she'd have to go back to a community where no one cared about her, 
See, we are told these details for a reason. She went to this well at noon. And historians tell us that that's not when women go to the well. They go early in the morning with a bunch of other women to get water for the day, for doing chores, for food, for cooking, for drinking. And this tells us that this woman going to the well in the middle of the day is she had no one, not even the women in town. She had this scarlet letter on her. She had barriers to God, barriers to her own people, barriers to, the, to all the blessings of being marked as a loved person. Can you imagine how despairing she was? And Jesus says, I came for you. You are the one I have come to save. I suspect people, maybe even here today, hearing this sermon have heavy hearts and thirsty hearts. Thirsty hearts that feel empty, hearts that maybe feel just like really thirsty and parched, desiring to be quenched. There's just, there's despair, there's discouragement, there's anxiety, depression, there's loneliness, there's confusion and, and skepticism of God's care for you. If you, are in, if you are in that category, we have, we've looked at this woman with a soul that is so thirsty and a life that was so empty, confronted by the one and the only one can, that could truly satisfy her soul. And he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink and I would satisfy it. I pray that, that you would hear the word of God, that you would see the character of Christ, the love of God for this woman. And to know that before you go home today, before you go to sleep tonight, that you could say, even just with a hint of faith, God, give me a drink. Give me that drink. So that I, would not be, that I would not be identified by my sin anymore. That I could know your love. That I could know your peace. That I could know your joy. That that would overflow in everything I do in my life. And that's what we do. We, we just say, give me a drink. What does it mean? It means that we don't let this gift pass us by. It means that, that we don't neglect trusting in our only hope for the redemption of our sin, but also for the renewal of our whole lives. It's always Jesus. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.